0: Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Eldon Taylor.
1: And welcome to another hour dedicated to understanding exactly what enlightenment means and what it might be to be enlightened. Indeed, an hour devoted to learning something more about ourselves, an hour designed to help us integrate all of our knowledge and perhaps even challenge some of those old ideas about the world we live in and the people we have become. This is an hour where we strive to evaluate knowing as inseparable from the total experience of reality. I'm Eldon Taylor, and this is Provocative Enlightenment. Now, every week we share some of your letters as our way of respecting the very important role you have in making this show successful. Last week, our guest was astrologer Linda Sherman, and she shared some predictions with us. According to Linda, the banksters, and put that word in quotation marks, have us in a depression, one that the economy does not recover from until 2020. She also predicted a major quake in California and Mexico between May and June of this year. And she told us of a promising new source of power that will be developed around 2020, surmising that it might be as a result of hydrogen fusion. So Celestial B from our chat room commented, My prediction about psychic predictions is... That many grains of salt should be in one's hand to go with them. Chanel wrote, You pretty well pointed out how often astrologers are wrong, the pseudo-scientific nature of astrology, and you asked direct questions like, what were the earnings from investments she suggested? Her answers either ignored your points or dismissed them with remarks like she was not a licensed investment counselor. Sorry, I found the whole matter pointless. Kevin wrote, How does she explain all of the things that don't come true? Chance, I am one that believes all of pretty much everything, but I cannot stand it when someone uses astrology to stand on a soapbox and use scare tactics to sell books, earthquakes, depression, tectonic plates erupting volcanoes we might as all. We might as well just call it a day. Not too optimistic, there are you Kevin. Mark wrote, I enjoyed the show with astrologer Linda Sherman today. I live in San Diego, so I'm a bit nervous about the earthquake prediction. One comment I have is that predictions like prophecies can be impacted by prayer, affirmations, and positive intentions, especially when done by many people. No guarantee they will avert anything, but who knows? They just might do so, at least to some degree. Of course, it's always a good idea to be prepared in basic survival skills and first aid, and have a place to store some water and food. Now Maria wrote, Not everyone will have the means to pick up and move their life according to a prediction. I choose to live my life in a city I love. I am connected in a proactive way to all the beautiful things in my life. The hurdles are the thorns igniting the understanding of how wondrous my gifts truly are. Ginger asked, What did you mean when you told the bipolar caller that she needed to trust in who she really was, the divine nature? Did you mean something like have faith? Okay, now, actually, Ginger, what I meant meant was more like finding that noetic information within that informs us of the truth of our being. No matter what goes on with our chemistry, we don't deny our existence. Uh... I am convinced that existing within all of us is an innate, or what Socrates would have called, unnatural knowledge. Let me give you an example of this. Without ever being told or taught, we all know that there is no such thing as a number to which one cannot be added. As Aristotle might have said, there are more ways than one to know. Here is another example. I could ask two people for the sum of angles in a triangle. One could take an instrument, carefully measure the triangle, and come back with a knowledge. Another, knowing that all triangles contain 180 degrees, would simply give me the answer without measurement. So here we have yet two more forms of knowledge. What I intended to communicate in two minutes or less, at least by way of introduction, is the idea that when we establish our spirituality on knowledge, then chemistry is unable to dissuade us from what we know. Our caller could find this knowledge as a result of experience, natural knowledge, and or through a noetic knowing, uh, apprehending the information by way of inner reason. Now what I sent our caller is a library titled Mystical Mind. It consists of 21 CDs, lectures, books, and more, and has been specially created to facilitate the knowing of our spiritual nature from both an experiential and a philosophical basis. Again, once there is a knowing, the bouncing from one search to another becomes pointless. Okay, Jane wrote, I simply love your show on Hay House Radio. I wish it were longer. You get into some really good conversations with pointed questions that invite information I don't get elsewhere. Are you going to have a two-hour show? Well, I would hope so, Jane, but we'll just have to wait and see. The decision is not mine or it would have been done. You can write Hay House Radio and tell them you want this show to be a two-hour program. Management makes that decision. But while I'm on the subject, I want to thank all of you out there for consistently week in and week out keeping us at the very top of the station's ratings. Thank you. Now, finally, I saved the best for last, Ravinder. Uh-oh. Ben wrote, Ravinder, I often love your softer perspective on Eldon's show, Provocative Enlightenment. Behind every great man is a great woman. Thanks for your work. Now, you know, the man speaks the truth, girl. And you know, today is Valentine's Day. So I have something for you. Happy Valentine's Day, sweet love. Will you be my Valentine? Oh, my gosh. He cheats, everyone out there. We always have this deal that we're not doing anything. And then he cheats, and I just got the most beautiful gold heart-shaped necklace with a dozen rubies encrusted around it. It is absolutely gorgeous. You're a cheat, though. A little bit. All right. That's all the time we're going to take for letters and mush today. But I do invite you to opine by sending your email to eldon at com, or by joining me on Facebook. You can also just leave comments on my website. We can't get uh, all your letters on the air, but they do impact our programming, and I do thank you for your support. Now to today's show, Consciousness in the universe. Many who are attracted to, you know the so-called New Age movement find physics to be of a special interest. It's as if, in my view, that they need to validate their feelings and beliefs by insisting on evidence from science, and physics is the master science to those folks. So it's common parlance to hear about consciousness creating the universe. Usually, the double-slit experiment is referenced as evidence a priori that mind enters matter, influencing the manifestation of either the wave or the particle. From there, we typically hear about the holographic universe unfolding as we unpack our thoughts. And then it's time to get out the random number generator findings, and voila, the final nail is delivered. Now, when you take this information to the physicist, most will discredit the interpretation entirely. In their view, there exists a number of alternative explanations for your interpretations, and they make much more sense than the idea of mind-creating and or manipulating somehow matter. Now, that said, there is a price to pay if, as a scientist, you decide to agree with those nutty New Agers, And that price may cost you your career. Some dare to step forward, however, and call it as they see it. Our guest today is just this sort of scientist, and I'm excited about his appearance on today's show. Dr. Stuart Hameroff is an anesthesiologist and professor at the University of Arizona. He is known for his scientific studies of consciousness. Dr. Hameroff received his bachelor's degree from the University of Pittsburgh and his M.D. from Hahnemann University Hospital, where he studied before he became part of the Drexel University College of Medicine. He took an internship at the Tucson Medical Center in 1973. From 1975 onwards, he has spent the whole of his career at the University of Arizona, becoming professor in the Department of Anesthesiology and Psychology and associate director for the Center of Consciousness Studies. Both in nineteen ninety nine and finally Emeritus Professor for Anesthesiology and Psychology in two thousand and three. So let's get him in here. Welcome to Provocative Enlightenment, Professor Stuart Hammeroff.
0: Thank you, Eldon. It's uh, nice to be here.
1: Ah, it's our pleasure, sir. Let's begin this way. You're you're a professor of anesthesiology and psychology in Arizona, and you have co authored and co edited papers with physicists. Sir Roger Penrose of the United Kingdom, and he is, by most accounts, Stephen W. Hawking's mentor. So I love the story of how your collaboration came about. How about sharing that with our audience?
0: Well, Eldon, I had been interested in consciousness from my undergraduate days from a philosophy of mind uh, class, and then in medical school, was uh, oriented towards uh, the brain mind specialties, neurology, psychiatry neurosurgery. Uh, But I became very interested uh, during a research elective in a cancer lab in how cells divide and how the chromosomes are pulled apart perfectly by structures called microtubules inside the cell. And then it was discovered in 1972 that neurons of the brain are all full of these microtubules and actually are constructed of them. And I've I became somewhat uh, obsessed, you might say, with how they process information, and that they might be functioning as molecular-scale computers inside neurons underlying consciousness. Now, most people look at consciousness in the brain as emerging from complex computational interactions among neurons acting as simple bits or switches. But if you look at a single cell, like a, a paramecium, which swims around, finds food, finds a mate, avoids predators, can learn, has sex with a mate. It doesn't have any synapses. It's just one cell. So if a paramecium can use its microtubules to be that clever, I figured that neurons might be using microtubules to underlie consciousness. So I became interested in, in, in computation, classical computation, in microtubules underlying consciousness which increased the capacity of the brain enormously because each cell, rather than being a single bit, was something like uh, 10 to the 14th bits per second or operations per second. And so I was making that argument through the 70s and 80s, uh, many meetings and articles, and a book I wrote in 1987 called Ultimate Computing. Uh, but then uh, one day somebody said to me, Well, let's say you're right, and we have all this computation going on inside the neuron, and the brain's much more. Uh, rich than uh, we think. But still, how would that explain consciousness? How would that explain how we can have uh, feelings, experience, and, uh, and what we call consciousness, conscious awareness? And I had to admit that I was, uh, I was stumped. I didn't know. Now, fortunately, at that time, I, uh, I read a, a book by, by Roger Penrose. In fact, somebody suggested I read it called uh, The Emperor's New Mind, and uh, in it, he argued against, uh, ag- against um, computationalism per se, arguing that there must be some type of uh, quantum physics going on. And his arguments for that were, were through philosophy and through Gödel's theorem. And uh, I didn't quite get all of it, but I did have a deep intuitive sense that he was onto something and that consciousness was something more than computation. And moreover, his quantum explanation tied consciousness to uh, the fine-scale structure of the universe, space-time geometry. And this kind of blew my mind because I hadn't really studied quantum physics at that at that point. Uh, and yet again, he it seemed intuitively correct. There was something more to it, but he didn't have a good quantum computer uh, for his quantum computations leading to consciousness. He was saying, well, maybe a neuron could be in a superposition of both firing and not firing, but I thought uh-huh. neurons were too big for that. And I thought to myself, well, maybe microtubules are the quantum computer that Roger Penrose needs, and maybe his objective reduction mechanism, quantum physics mechanism for consciousness, was the mechanism I needed. And so I wrote to him and suggested microtubules were his quantum computers, and he liked the idea, and we soon met and uh, began to collaborate in the early 90s.
1: My understanding was, I mean, uh, he actually answered your letter, and and you flew over, and uh, and you spent uh, two or three days together. Is that right?
0: Well, something like that. I uh, I had a, a trip planned to England for a a, a meeting, and I wrote to uh-huh. him, and he wrote back. This was before email, at least for me, in the early nineties. And uh, he wrote back and uh, said, "Sure, s- uh, stop by in Oxford when you're in England." And I did, and I met him in his office, uh, and we spent uh, the afternoon together, actually. I I didn't have much time at that point uh, because I was going on to another conference. But uh, I did most of the talking. Roger, as brilliant and and famous as he is, is actually quite reserved and and humble. And uh, I I showed him the book I had written about microtubules and and explained to him. And he was particularly taken by their geometry and the, the Fibonacci sequence of the spiral wrappings. And uh, so he uh, he he thought it was uh, uh, a plausible idea, but he didn't really uh, say too much more. He did say that he was going to a conference uh, right after that in Cambridge, where uh, uh, Patricia Churchland and Dan Dennett and some other famous philosophers who were opposed to his ideas would be. Right. And uh, anyway, uh, two weeks later, I was back in England, back in uh, London, on my way home, and uh, had dinner with a friend. He said. You'll never guess. Uh, somebody went to this conference at Cambridge, and Roger Penrose was talking about you and your microtubule ideas. And uh, I, I thought that was I was pretty happy about that. And so yeah, he, he later uh, invited me to another conference in Sweden, and it was then uh, that we began our, our serious collaboration to develop our model.
1: Okay, now uh, there obviously, I mean, you brought up the emperor's new mind, and you brought up Kurt Girdle and first principle uh, ideas, there, there have been some criticism of that. Uh, Tegmark uh, did a paper that has uh, been widely cited that that criticizes your proposals, yours and, and Penrose's proposal, uh, on the basis of the, the time scale of neuron firing and the excitations of microtubules. Uh, I, I, I guess most importantly where I'm that? going – yeah well that's exactly what I'm asking you. How do you answer these criticisms?
0: Well, first of all, let me say it's much better to be criticized than ignored. I, and we've had some pretty uh, pretty bitter criticisms, and people see us as a threat. Tegmark uh, wrote a paper in two thousand that said that where he calculated the decoherence time of a microtubule. Now, we right. had suggested that microtubules must stay in quantum in a quantum state, quantum superposition for let's say 25 milliseconds which is the time for 40 hertz oscillations in the brain Mm -hmm. in other words it seems that we have about 40 conscious moments per second 40 hertz and that's 25 milliseconds so we would need the microtubules to stay in quantum superposition for 25 milliseconds until they reach the threshold for self-collapse that roger uh, came up with uh, that would give uh, objective reduction in a moment of consciousness so um, 25 milliseconds was was what we uh, were suggesting. Tegmark uh, came up with a formula from which he calculated the decoherence time, and he came up with a uh, a model, a quantum model of microtubules of his own, which wasn't really our model. He kind of made up his own quantum microtubule model, where the superposition was between solitons separated by 24 nanometers, and he calculated a. Uh, a decoherence time of ten to the minus thirteen seconds, which was uh, oh, uh, eleven orders of magnitude too fast for right. our uh, for our purposes. Um, so it was a theoretical argument, and at that time, all we had was theory against theory. But I asked a couple of my physics colleagues, Jack Jasinski and uh, we uh, and Scott Hagen, and we wrote a. Uh, I did a calculation using Tegmark's own formula, but corrected it for the model that Penrose and I had developed, the orchestrated objective reduction, or orcor model. and right. um the uh, the superposition separation distance that he had was seven orders of magnitude larger than what we had proposed. so that was seven orders of magnitude right there. And there were several other uh, uh, assumptions that he neglected. So, we, using his own formula, we re- recalculated and came up with a decoherence time in the order of up to 100 milliseconds within our purposes. And we published that in the exact same uh, journal, Red E, that Tegmark um, had published his critique in. So we answered that theory versus theory. But what's happened in recent years that's that's more important, uh, beginning in about 2006, scientists began to find quantum states—well, let me back up and say the—, the if you want to build a quantum computer in the laboratory, people do it at absolute zero temperature because uh, uh, temperature and heat disrupts quantum uh, states. And so uh, Techmark and other words, would put the body temperature, brain temperature, 37.6 degrees in and say that's way too warm that, you need to be, uh, that the vibrations would kill the quantum states. But we thought that nature was more clever than that and could use the heat to generate the quantum states. But that was, again, theory versus theory. But beginning in the 2006, 2007, a number of articles began to appear reporting on experimentally observed quantum states in warm, bio- warm biological systems. For example, in photosynthesis, that when plants absorb photons and convert it to electronic energy and chemical energy to make food, that the electronic uh, energy is, is transported through the plant cell in a quantum state of, of exploring all possible uh, pathways, which is the most efficient possible use of the energy. And so that showed that quantum biology is real, that um, that, quanti- that bio- living systems can use um, uh, quantum states at, at warm temperature. And more significantly, in the last two or three years, uh, Uh, A man named Anurban Bhadyapati, an Indian uh, scientist working in Japan at the National Institute of of, uh, Material Sciences in Tsukuba, has been studying individual microtubules at room temperature, at warm temperature, and has found quantum states lasting up to 100 milliseconds. And more importantly, resonance peaks that microtubules when vibrating at specific resonances go into what looks like almost superconductive quantum states. So there's now experimental evidence for quantum states in microtubules at warm biological temperatures approaching 100 milliseconds. And that paper will be coming out in Nature, Nature Materials, in the next, uh, next few months. So the evidence is accruing on our side now. So what I say to Tegmark and also a group of Australians who have been very critical of our uh, theory is that the evidence is coming out on our side, and I would bet on us.
1: Yeah, you've got to be really excited about that, and and I do. I have followed your theories for some time now, and uh, and and I I am excited to see it it going that way. Uh, we only have a couple of minutes, and and yeah, while we're on this criticism, this back and forth, Shermer criticized you indirectly for your role in the in the flick What the Bleep, and you answered him in nineteen ninety eight. By basically saying that you had published 20 testable predictions of your model uh, and that some of these predictions had already been proven to be true. Can you share with us what those predictions were and how they have been demonstrated to be true?
0: Right. Well, um, uh, Sherman wrote an article on Scientific American, and he did criticize me for uh, criticize the movie and me in particular. But what I said about what the bleep was, I don't necessarily agree with everything that was said by everybody in that film, but I stand by what I said. And moreover, it's entertainment. He should just lighten up and get a life. But as far <laughs> as the, the 20 uh, testable predictions, um, a number of them have come true. The most significant being uh, the one I just mentioned, showing quantum states in, uh, in microtubules at warm biological temperature. That, that really takes the cake because it makes the other ones uh, pretty, uh, not that significant. But one, uh, I'll give you a couple other examples. One was uh, people would say, okay, let's say you're right and there's quantum states in microtubules in one neuron in the brain. How does that get to throughout the brain and traversing uh, noisy synapses and membranes and uh, I suggested that uh, we suggested that uh, there are um, that that this happens through what are called gap junctions or electrical synapses in that. Uh, now, these are a different type of connection between neurons other than chemical synapses in which the neurons are separated. Gap junctions Professor, actually connect one neuron to another and make make. Professor Amaroff,
1: uh, I'm, I'm going to have to hold you there. We've got a hard break on it. We'll pick this right up when we come back from the break. Uh, the book is Consciousness and the Universe this is a wonderful book uh, you're listening to Provocative Enlightenment I'm talking with Professor Stuart Hameroff and when we come back we'll take your phone calls now if you're not already in a chat room now's a great time to get in there watch the film join the conversation so just go to eldentaylorcom forward slash chat stay tuned you don't want to miss what's coming up after these words from some of our friends
2: Have you talked to yourself lately? What does that inner voice say? Are you constantly hearing negative feedback? Ready for a change? Inner Talk, Eldon Taylor's patented subliminal technology, can do just that change your inner self talk. Turn off the negative by replacing it with positive affirmations. Inner Talk has been researched at universities such as Stanford and by governments around the world and has been proven effective at priming your self talk. Armed with a new positive outlook, you'll find everything becomes easier. From losing weight to stop smoking, giving presentations to riding horses, learning new things to being a powerful salesperson. Choose your title for change today. Visit www.innertalk.com. That's I N N E R T A L K.com. Innertalk.com confusion, deception, manipulation, feeling a bit controlled, lost. Learn how you can take back control of your life through proven techniques in Eldon Taylor's revised edition of Choices and Illusions. This New York Times bestseller is a guidebook to your journey to self-actualization filled with practical, real-life solutions backed by scientific studies and guaranteed to awaken your inner genie. Get your copy today from all bookstores,
0: Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Eldon Taylor. Welcome back.
1: If you just joined us, we're discussing... uh, Well, actually, we're discussing the nature of consciousness uh, in the universe. Uh, I referred earlier to the book, Consciousness in the Universe. It's a book that uh, I have enjoyed very, very much. It's uh, 1,100-plus pages. Uh, It's edited by our guest today, uh, Professor Stuart Hameroff and uh, a man that he has collaborated with, Sir Roger Penrose, the brilliant physicist in the United Kingdom. I would strongly recommend this book, but if, if you just joined us, we're speaking with author, research scientist, and physician Professor Stuart Amara. Uh But before we get back to today's show, I want to invite you to once again like our Facebook uh, fan page for Provocative Enlightenment Radio. As a fan of the show, you will always know where we are, what's on next, and from time to time, we have some special incentives for you. I would also like to invite you to join me on Facebook while you're there, and if you like our show, do please spread the word. We genuinely appreciate your support. All right, let's get back to the show. Uh, Professor Hammeroth, I, I'm, I'm getting beat up by some people in our chat room, I am, and it's my fault. I'm being selfish. I... I, I really welcome the opportunity to just ask you questions one-on-one, but, but perhaps we're going a little too fast, so I'm going to ask you, if you would, to kind of recap what you discussed in, uh, in the first half of the program in very simple layman terms as to what that means for the average person.
0: Well, what it means to me, Eldon, is that consciousness is not a uh, emergent computation of the brain. Consciousness involves a connection between what's going on in the brain and the fundamental level of the universe. Uh, you, you said something in your intro about noetic information embedded in the universe, and Penrose calls that platonic information, the Vedic scriptures call it the Akashic Record, uh, whatever it is, it's some kind of intelligence that may be inherent in the universe that we are connected to. And to, to make that connection, you need to show how the brain processes, which are at a much larger scale, uh, larger scale than, than the fine scale structure of the universe can connect. And that's the Penrose mechanism. And so when we talk about quantum states and microtubules, we're saying that the brain is connected to the fundamental level of the universe called space-time geometry, probably through some kind of fractal or holographic arrangement in which uh, consciousness and its content repeat at different scales from the brain level down all the way down to the infinitesimally tiny Planck scale of 10 to the minus 33 centimeters. So this allows quantum entanglement between us and the universe and also between us and other people uh, with an, ex, uh, an accountable explanation for things like parapsychology, ESP, precognition, and even spirituality, because if you have cosmic wisdom in pervading the universe and the possibility of consciousness even existing at, at smaller, faster scales independent of biology, you have the possibility for afterlife. So I don't claim any proof, but I think it's plausible, biologically plausible and certainly plausible in physics that consciousness can exist at these smaller, faster scales, independent of the brain, independent of biology.
1: Okay, and, and thank you very much. That, that wonderfully well um, articulated. Uh, the Jungian models, of course, have the collective unconscious, and for all intent and purposes through what we think of as archetypal information, uh, that argument for how we know these things is, is has existed for for some time, but the actual mechanic is what, if I understand you correctly, the actual mechanic for it is what you and uh, and Penrose have developed. Now, <clears throat> go ahead, sir.
0: Well, I was going to say that. Yeah, I mean, if you think of uh, empty space, people say, "Well, how can how can this exist in empty space?" But empty space is not really empty. If you go down, I mean, atoms are mostly empty. But if you go down and down in scale, eventually you get to a fine scale geometry, a structure of the universe. And this is this is in, in Roger Penrose's area of expertise in ter- connecting uh, c- uh, the fine scale structure to quantum gravity, rel- general relativity, and so forth. That there's information there, and that's it's platonic information or the uh, collective, collective wisdom, collective unconscious, you know, Akashic record, whatever you want to call it. Virtually every uh, spiritual tradition has some, uh, has some description of this. And the mechanism that we came up with shows how our brains, through quantum states and microtubules, can connect to this fundamental level.
1: Okay, now, you, you've recently um, co-authored a paper with Deepak Chopra. And and you introduced the idea of how this explains perhaps uh, an underlying uh, way by which we can understand paranormal, parapsychology, and so forth. But in the paper with Deepak Chopra, you're stating that your your research supports the view, well, well, let me just quote you, quote, Recent evidence for significant quantum coherence in warm biological systems, which we covered in the first half of the show, back to the quote, scale-free dynamics in end-of-life brain activity, support the notion of a quantum basis for consciousness which could conceivably exist independent of biology in various scalar planes in space-time geometry, close quote. Now, you go on to discuss NDEs and to offer a scientific proposal for quantum soul. Apparently, if I interpreted correctly, apparently somewhat based on the NDE premise. So, now you're probably familiar with the work of Dr. Kevin Nelson. And he's convinced, and his referee journal article suggests that the experience one has during an NDE is akin to dreaming. It uses the same rapid eye movement mechanism associated with sleep. Uh, In his book, The Spiritual Doorway to the Brain, he makes it very clear that the mechanism underlying the dream state is precisely the same mechanism involved in an NDE. Now, to qualify some on this show, he did admit that it's possible that some NDEs cannot be explained this way. But for all that he had researched, he was comfortable stating that an NDE is simply a natural process invoked by the brain as we die, as simple as that. So first, what's your take on his position? And second, how and why do you find NDEs a compelling element upon which a theory for quantum soul uh, could be built?
0: Well, I'm not familiar with his work, but from what you said, I would not agree that NDE is the same as dreaming for a number of reasons. And what I referred to as end-of-life activity comes from studies that have been done by uh, Lachmir Chawla George Washington University and other people around the country and that now around the world where as people die, let's say uh, somebody is terminally ill and support is withdrawn and they're allowed to die peacefully, uh, these scientists have been putting brain monitors on them, uh, very similar, essentially the same as what we use in anesthesia to measure depth depth of anesthesia and to prevent awareness. And what they found astoundingly was that as the heart stopped and the blood pressure uh, went away or uh, went to basically zero, near zero, that the brain activity dwindled down to, and they give it a number, they take the EEG and process it and give it a number from zero to 100, where 80 to 100 is where we normal weight conscious people are. And where the, manufacturer, the manufacturers recommend for anesthesia, you want to be between 40 and 60. So as the patients died, as, as their, their number dwindled down to near zero. But then, just at the moment of death, you could say there was a burst of, of activity up to above 80 um, that lasted up to uh, several minutes that um, was gamma synchrony, sig- uh, signifying conscious awareness. And this comes at a time when the brain is metabolically inactive. You've run out of uh, ATP, you've run out of oxygen, you've run out of glucose, you've run out of everything, and yet there's this burst of coherent activity. And the coherence indicates that it's not just random spasmodic uh, neurons firing as they die, but some kind of organized activity. And uh, the people doing this, well, Chala suggested this might correlate with a near-death experience, and I think... This is a very difficult thing to explain by normal conventional mechanisms. To me, what it means is that consciousness is actually a very low-energy quantum effect and that where all the, when the neuronal firings have ceased, there's still coherent activity, and this could be uh, capturing the, the near-death experience or, in the case, since these patients actually die and don't come back to tell us, uh, perhaps even the soul leaving the body.
1: The implications of that are just, uh, they're very exciting. When you look at the mechanism now, then, as you've explained it, we don't see consciousness as necessarily, um, what, uh, generated by the brain. We see the brain as the vehicle, and you correct me, please. Uh, well,
0: i do not so that the... far. I I know that. I mean, and this is where Deepak and I uh, uh, disagree slightly. We're very close together on most things, certainly uh, compared to uh, conventional scientists. But but I think that you know our individual consciousness, yours versus mine, uh, obviously they're different. So they they depend on on uh, our history. You know, your genetic input, your and the sum total of your environment, your learning over the course of of your lifetime, and same for me, and same for everyone else. And what I think it, you know, the, the, you could think of the world, the universe, the reality is, is two separate realms, the, the classical realm and the quantum realm. And uh, consciousness exists on the edge between those two realms. The, the Kabbalah says consciousness dances on the edge between uh, two worlds, and I think that, that, I take that somewhat literally to mean that consciousness is a process On the edge between the quantum and classical world so it's not that it's creating reality it's shaping reality it's certainly shaping our perception
1: right well that isn't where I was where I was going but I'm glad you you added that right and and I'm I'm glad you headed off what may have well been misunderstood by everybody where I'm going is if consciousness is leaving the body at at the time of death from back to the NDEs uh, for all intent and purposes uh, although the brain and, and our life experiences, you point out, and genetic characteristics, etc., uh, m- must influence that consciousness, the consciousness itself must exist independent of it. At the same time, is that is that a fair way of saying that?
0: Well, consciousness—the content of consciousness includes all of that. But the actual process of what it is 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 a physical, I think, a physical, a series of physical events of quantum state reductions occurring say, 40 times a second, roughly 40 times a second. And when you're in an altered or excited state, uh, it can go even faster. We know that that, uh, Tibetan monks who meditate uh, get up to 80 80 hertz uh, conscious moments, and in altered states, uh, you can even go faster and higher. So, and I think uh, you know, uh, Deepak, for example, talks about lokas and uh, and uh, the, the Vedic uh, scriptures of, of multiple levels. And I think this relates to the, uh, the fractal business of of going faster and deeper. So, as consciousness moves deeper um, uh, to to smaller scale, faster. That's, when, that's where enlightenment and altered states uh, come in. And it reminds me of the uh, song by the Beatles, uh, which I think they got from Maharishi, the deeper you go, the higher you fly, the higher you fly, the deeper you go. And I think as we, if we meditate or are in an altered state or uh, are having an NDE, our consciousness is going to a deeper, uh, smaller, faster scale in the fractal hierarchy.
1: So uh, that would probably also apply for something like an OBE.
0: Uh, yeah, uh, OBE, organic out
1: of body experience. Oh
0: yes, of course, yes, definitely. Um, uh, that consciousness can exist um, independently of the body, and in the case of an NDE, it goes back in. In the case of uh, of the pay, uh, subject dying, then it uh, you know it assimilates into the universe.
1: Okay, well, that gives rise to then, you know, let's, let's come back and think about string theory and, and um, the other orders that are placed out here by our physicists today, multiverses. What are your thoughts then on ideas such as, you know, multiple universes and the fact that, uh, well, I could have turned left and in some universe I did, but in this one I turned right?
0: Well, I follow Roger Penrose on this, and he he does not uh, follow either string theory, M theory, or multiple universes. Uh, I think that uh, every so let's back up. A quantum superposition is something being in two possible states at once. So the right. multiple worlds people would say that that an electron over here and over there at the same time each would branch off to form a whole new universe. And if you turn right, or you turn left. Each each of those would be a whole new universe. But uh, what he says is that the superpositions are self-limited. That it, and what they are, is, are as the multiple worlds people say, a separation in underlying space-time geometry. But there's, a, there's an instability, they're unstable, and after a time, T will reduce to one or the other. So you don't form a whole new universe. You have a little shredding of the universe locally, um, but it self-collapses and, and you pick one or the other. And the choice of which you pick which is chosen uh, is determined by is influenced by platonic values and and cosmic wisdom. So I don't think you need multiple universes uh, and and string theory leads to the M theory idea. So the Penrose physics really gets around that and avoids the the need for either.
1: Okay. Uh, While we're just pursuing this, then let's, let's look at, you know, phenomena, very specific phenomena. Um, You introduced that idea when you you essentially said that the theory uh, would explain paranormal activity. Uh, How about reincarnation? Why don't you talk to us about how you see time uh, and consciousness and and then draw out uh, your explanations of reincarnation?
0: Well, uh, that's several questions, so let, let me just talk about time first. You know, out, outside of consciousness, there's not necessarily a flow of time or an arrow of time. So it could be that consciousness creates this perception of time moving forward. And we know from the work of Daryl Bem and others that we can get information from the future in consciousness. And, and by the way, uh, that'll be one of the uh, themes of the upcoming uh, conference we have toward a science of consciousness, to be held in Tucson, Arizona, April uh, 9th through 14th. Deepak Chopra will be here and uh, many other luminaries. And Deepak's giving a special workshop and will be in a session with Leonard Malad now on War of the Worldviews. But but time is, it, I think, conscious. you got
1: a website for that? I mean, you know, give all yes, the details to our audience while we're on it.
0: Absolutely. www.consciousness.arizona.edu consciousness.arizona.edu and it's it's a week long and we have uh, uh, it's very uh, rigorous and, but a lot of fun we have a lot of fun and we it's a it's a mixture of, uh, of uh, Western philosophy Eastern philosophy, physics biology cognitive science and uh, uh, you know a very wide umbrella bringing everybody together in a beautiful location at the Ventana Canyon Resort uh, and for a, for a week long with lots of social events and so forth so consciousness.arizona.edu. Now, as far as reincarnation, we—that was the point of uh, of uh, the article with Deepak Quantum Soul, because um, and you know I don't you know um, advocate any particular story as being true, but overall there's so many uh, so many suggestions that I think it probably is true, and that so if consciousness leaves the body at the time of death, um, and exists at large in the universe, which is holographic, so it's distributed and non-local then it could uh, conceivably enter a biological system through the microtubules in an embryo or a zygote, and uh, the, the, uh, that person would have some memory of, uh, of the previous person. So I think, by this account, uh, reincarnation is possible.
1: Okay, now, uh, I think the relevance of time is, do you see reincarnation as uh, necessarily being... Uh, progressive in the way we see time or uh, i mean there are there are stories of reincarnation uh, individuals that have uh, argued for past lives who have lived future lives to return to later lives in other words they live sometime in the future and then they're back uh, maybe living in the in the 21st century today do you see that as a possibility in how consciousness would work with I'll put time, space, in quotation marks.
0: Well, I think it's possible. You know, we don't know for sure, but until we understand what consciousness is, you can't rule that out. I mean, I get a lot of flack from uh, conventional scientists and philosophers, and and what I say to them is until you can, you know, about suggesting out-of-body consciousness and non-locality and so forth, but I say to them, until you can explain consciousness in the brain, which they cannot, then you can't say that, that these other things are not true. So... Um, It's a very exciting time because we're getting a merger of, like, Eastern philosophy that I've learned through Deepak and others and and my colleagues in India with quantum physics. I kind of call it the uh, Quantum Eastern Alliance because I think when you put quantum (laughs) physics together with Eastern philosophy, that's where the progress is going to be made in understanding the brain.
1: Now, now how does Roger Penrose deal with this? I, I mean, I understand, at least at one time in 2010, he was an atheist.
0: Well... I asked Roger about that once because I said, "You know, your idea of Platonic uh, wisdom or Platonic values is, could be looked at as something like God." And he said, "I don't find God a useful term." And if you, it, you know, and I've talked with him about this, and I, I don't, I wouldn't really call him an atheist. He may have said that from a standpoint of, you know, strict uh, religious beliefs, but but I a belief in a. Uh, platonic wisdom that pervades the universe that can influence our thoughts in a in a positive way and allow communication among people is is very spiritual. Uh, so it's a matter of terminology. I I think his views are very spiritual, whether he would call it that or not, and uh, right. he's aware of that. And I actually told him uh, that you know I was going to be writing this this article with Deepak, and uh, he winced a little bit and he said, "Well, quantum soul, you know." It's up to you. He uh, He's aware of it. Uh, he's got his own uh, flanks to worry about from all of his other endeavors. So uh, he won't necessarily go there, but I think uh, he's somewhat sympathetic.
1: All right. I, I, I You know, I can still remember a brief uh, history of time and listening to Hawking say, you know, in the beginning there was singularity and singularity divided itself and I the singularity divided itself as you know I have no, read something very similar to that in in the Vedas in, in the um, you know the biblical accounts in, in in all of the extant living religions I uh, let's let, let me ask you this we uh, you know you the, We think of the soul. We think of uh, our processes we go through. We've talked about how consciousness is independent of the brain, and yet we know that if you damage the brain, it damages the individual. In fact, the classical case, say, Phineas Gage is well-known among those who look into these matters, and know, damage in the area of the brain, in his instance, diminished moral reasoning. It was lost. We, we know about hormonal functions and, and how they can change mood states and, and basically affect personality. We also know about P300 waves that indicate that before we have a conscious uh, thought, it's given to us by the unconscious. All of this might tend to suggest to us a couple of things. Uh, maybe consciousness is a prisoner in the brain Maybe uh, there isn't any such thing as free will; uh, it's all predetermined. Uh, how do you see the, this uh, quandary of philosophical questions that arise out of your model?
0: Well, first of all, you, you raised several issues there. As far as free will and the uh, and the P three hundred, I think you were referring to the sort of readiness potential that if you if somebody's yes. going to move their finger. And you record from the brain there's all this activity well before they tell you they decide to move their finger. And that's right. been, I think, misinterpreted to mean that the subconscious is what moves the finger. And we have this illusion afterwards that um, <clears throat> that we decided to. And, and that's really the mainstream view. And I think it's it's very unfortunate and wrong. And you can get it, you can totally get rid of that problem by bringing in backward time effects in the brain, which were shown experimentally by Ben Libet in the 1970s, and have been validated over the years by Dean Radin and Dick Bierman, and now Daryl Bem showing these backward time effects. So, uh, Professor
1: Hammeroth, you know I love to ask a question that leaves us dangling just at the end of the show, and I say that facetiously. We Yeah, we've got just about less than a minute. I want our audience to know how to get to you, how to follow up on your research. Please share that with us in about 20
0: seconds. Okay, my website, www.quantumconsciousness.org, quantumconsciousness, one word, .org, and uh, come to the conference or follow it online or get the videotapes uh, toward a science of consciousness www.consciousness.arizona.edu.
1: Okay. Well, you can see why we need a two-hour show. I I have really enjoyed having you uh, on the show today, and I'm sure our listening audience has as well. We've come to the end of another hour of Provocative Enlightenment. I want to thank you all for being here. And wherever you are in the world, until next time, remember, believing in yourself always matters.